Once upon a time, the Russians claimed they would not invade Ukraine. So why would anyone believe what they have to say this time? The lead starts right now. The White House adding skepticism to Russia's so-called strategy shift, claiming its forces will retreat from Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. Ahead, a member of Ukraine's parliament who is helping push back Putin's army as a member of the Ukrainian resistance. Plus, as refugees flee Ukraine, medical foot soldiers move in, offering their expertise in hard-hit areas of Russia's invasion. Also, the January 6th investigation committee wraps up its investigation, zeroing in on a very suspicious seven-hour gap in Trump call logs as rioters stormed the Capitol. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with breaking news on our world lead. President Biden and his top administration officials making it quite clear today that they will not believe Russia's newest claims of de-escalation until they see it happening on the ground in Ukraine for themselves. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. There is what Russia says and there's what Russia does. We're focused on the latter. And what Russia is doing is the continued brutalization of Ukraine. We're not prepared to call this a retreat or even a withdrawal. We think that that what they probably have in mind is a repositioning to prioritize elsewhere. Earlier today, after another round of negotiations with Ukraine, Russian officials claimed they plan to, quote, drastically reduce their military assault on the capital of Kyiv and the northeastern city of Chernihiv. Sources telling CNN that the U.S. is seeing some signs of a shift in Russia's strategy, including a withdrawal of some some Russian troops from around Kyiv, but U.S. officials believe this is just a repositioning of troops, not a withdrawal. And this apparent change in strategy does not mean that the Russian assault on other parts of Ukraine has let up in any way. Video shows the moment a Russian strike hit a government building in the southwestern town of Mykolaiv today. Local media report at least 12 Ukrainians were killed in that attack. Let's get straight to CNN's chief international anchor, Christiana Mapur, who's live for us in Kyiv, Ukraine. And Christian, there are so many reasons for the world to be skeptical about what Putin's true intentions are at this point. Jake, that's absolutely right. And I think the best one can say right now is that whatever's come out of the Kremlin, the U.S. is right and the Ukrainians are right. Don't believe it until you actually see it. And so far, there is no evidence of any kind of major scale retreat. And to be fair, the Russians haven't said that. They've actually said that they're going to, you know, maybe back off a little bit in terms of the big cities like Kiev, because why? They have not been able to take it and reposition and redirect their forces to where they actually are pretty well uh, manned up, which is in the eastern part of the country, which they already occupy or at least part of it. And they actually do want to consolidate that and expand that piece of territory along within the south. So the best you can really hope for right now is a shift, or at least the best Kiev can hope for is a shift. I was out today with one of the key lawmakers, a parliamentarian. She's an opposition parliamentarian, but right now everybody is with Zelensky and the government and with the country. And she told me that on no account will this city fall or will they let it fall. Day 34 of war and the sounds are all around. There we go. Yeah. That sort of disturbs your day all the time. But you learn to live with it. 
Ukrainian MP Lesia Vasilenko says that after a month of this, she, like her president and country folk, believe the Russians will never take this city, though fighting does continue in the suburbs. She wanted to meet here at Maidan Square, where Ukrainians stood up for their rights in 2014 and brought down Putin's wrath and his revenge. Given his battlefield setbacks, though, I asked whether his shifting demands make a diplomatic compromise easier for Ukraine to accept. Now there's word, we don't know whether it's going to bear fruit, but that they might allow Ukraine to join EU as long as you renounce the NATO. Is that a compromise that Ukraine would accept? All of this started 34 days ago because one country cannot declare itself more sovereign than another country. And Russia tried to do just that. We cannot go for that compromise because that compromise to Putin would also mean um, a compromise of the general framework of defense and security of the world. Giving in to dictators means incentivizing them. Ukraine's dramatic resistance surprised the whole world, including Vladimir Putin. Three days they gave us, right? Putin thought he would be here in a matter of, of hours. We are doing this for our very survival. And when the survival instinct kicks in, people can do amazing things. People become superheroes. And this is what you're witnessing in Ukraine. Lesia is armed with her guns. The AK-47 is at home today. But she shows me her pistol held close to her heart. Lesia, when we spoke in the first week of the war before I got here, you said, I've got my machine gun. And you've tweeted that I've also got my manicures. Yes. Your resistance takes many, many forms. And you're actually carrying your pistol right I now. I am, I am. I do have my PM with me and I, I carry it actually with me all the time. Like and this. did you ever imagine in your life that as an MP in 2022 in Ukraine, yeah. you'd be forced to carry a gun around? No, never, never. I'm actually very much anti-gun and this gun caused a lot of problems for me because in order to recharge it, you have to sort of like do, do this thing. And with the nails, I had very nice, beautiful long nails. <laughs> it was impossible to do so. I, they had to all come off. And, and just so people are clear, the idea of beauty, self-maintenance is also resistance. Yes, all jokes aside, it's an important element for all women who are fighting alongside uh, the man folk here. Uh, the women still want to be beautiful. They still want to, to have dignity as, as women. And to and, be human. And to be human. He basically said, Putin, that Ukraine doesn't exist as a nation. You don't exist as a people. And we say to him, life goes on. We carry on living. Your war, your fighting against us is in the background now. And we'll go on fighting it for as long as we have to. But we will go on living at the same time. She is still an MP. Parliament is still passing laws. And since an army marches on its stomach, this too is their fight, their war effort. And so the ordinary becomes extraordinary, peeling carrots as if they were stacking up bullets. This trendy brunch and bar has turned into a wartime canteen, chopping onions in a frenzy of efficiency and purpose. Do you feel you're going to win? Of course. We must destroy the Russian army. You said you must destroy the Russian army? Yeah. And so they help turn out 600 meals a day and counting for the army and territorial defense, for hospitals and shelters. Outside, Lesia shows me the pictures of her three young children, who she's had to send away for their safety. 
This is my baby from this morning. Wow. This and is my youngest. How, how old? She's going to be 10 months in uh, just a couple of days. Wow. The first that must trip. be painful to be without her. It is. And she's sort of looking at you like, really, mommy? <laughs> really, you're going to be away from me? Staying on the front lines with this struggle comes at a huge personal cost. But Lesia has no doubts. I am where I have to be. I mean, things happen for a reason. I'm a firm believer in that. There's a reason why I was elected in 2019. We have a task, we have a duty, and uh, we will complete it, and then we will see where life takes us. You know, uh, every... So, Jake, just as we've been speaking, the air raid sirens here in Kyiv have been going off again. So it is clear that, you know, activity is still, is still you know, heavy around this area. She, Lesia Vasilenko, the MP, is going to France in order to try to keep mobilizing international support. They still need as much support as possible. They need weapons because clearly they're using them all day and every day to stave off the Russians and they need them replenished and they need it done fast. All right, CNN's Christiana Amapour in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Today, President Biden spoke with key European allies before hosting the Prime Minister of Singapore at the White House, where they discussed their support for Ukraine in ways to try to better deter further Russian aggression. President Biden also addressed whether or not he believes the Kremlin is serious about this idea they will de-escalate around Kiev and another northeastern Ukrainian city. CNN's MJ Lee is live for us at the White House right now. And MJ, President Biden and top officials, they're really pushing back on this idea that, that Russia is scaling back in any way, it's, it's overall offensive on Ukraine. That's right, Jake. Even as Russia says that, that it is going to drastically reduce some of its military attacks in some cities in Ukraine, including the capital city of Kyiv, and Ukrainian officials are seeing they are beginning to see some withdrawal of Russian troops. Uh, the U.S. is making it very clear this afternoon that there is reason to be cautious and even very skeptical. When President Biden was asked about all of these developments earlier this afternoon, he said it is simply too early to tell. Listen. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through on what they're suggesting. In the meantime, we're going to continue to keep strong the sanctions. We're going to continue to provide the Ukrainian military with their capacity to defend themselves. And we're going to continue to keep a close eye on what's going on. And since Biden made those comments, Pentagon and White House officials have further elaborated uh, to say that any Russian military movement is currently being seen by the U.S. as a redeployment, not a withdrawal, and that the threat to Kyiv remains very real. And there could even be the possibility of a new major offensive coming from Russia in the coming days. The White House just said, quote, we are not going to take their word for it. We are going to wait to see what their actions look like. Now, all of this coming as President Biden had a jam-packed day meeting with the prime minister of Singapore, where Ukraine was, of course, a major topic. And earlier today, he had a call with European leaders, including the leaders of Germany, France, Italy and the UK. Uh, I should note quickly on that call, the White House uh, comms director, Kate Bedingfield, just said that the comments that President Biden made over the weekend, that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power, that those comments did not come up in that call with European officials. Jake. All right. MJ Lee at the White House. Thank you so much. Russia may claim to be reducing its footprint near Kyiv, but that's not the case in other parts of Ukraine, of course. The new video evidence of Russia's activity beyond the capital. Plus, breaking news out of Israel, a deadly shooting near Tel Aviv as fears grow about a possible resurgence in Israel of the terrorist group ISIS. Stay with us. 
Continuing with our world lead, uh, we turn our focus now to southern Ukraine, where Russian forces continue their brutal and relentless attacks on the Ukrainian people. The regional governor in Mykolaiv reports that his office was hit in a deadly strike this morning where half the building was destroyed. Surveillance video shows the incoming missile, which is highlighted here. The, the building shakes and a plume of dust and smoke begin to rise. The nine-story building is still standing, some of it, but as you can see, there's a huge hole in it, at least 12 people were killed, with 33 others wounded in these initial counts. Mykolaiv has been the focus of Russian attacks for days, yet Ukrainians remain there, including the individual who is with you, those Ukrainians, CNN's Ben Wiedemann. Uh, ben, where were you uh, during this morning's attack, and what have you seen in the aftermath? Yeah, Jake, actually, right now we're hearing an air raid siren. Uh, we were in this hotel at 8.45 a.m. local time when we heard a large blast. Uh, it was at the headquarters of the regional governor, uh, which is really right in the middle of the city. And uh, it, by all, it, it would appear that this was very intentional. This is a regional governor who has been very outspoken, very active uh, during this last month of bloodshed here in Mykolaiv. This is a city that's very close to Russian front lines. They have been pushed back. Uh, but as we see with this air raid siren wailing outside right now, as we saw from this strike on the regional governor's office, they still have the ability to lob missiles and bombs uh, into this city. Now, in the area around the governor's office, there are lots of people, lots of residential buildings, many of which all of the windows were shattered. But it was just a few hours later. We were there for quite a while. People were sweeping up the glass, trying to get back to normal life. Many people have fed, fled Mykolaiv, but for the most part, the population is sticking it out. Now, this afternoon, we were outside of the city, and we saw that uh, there was more outgoing Ukrainian fire than incoming Russian fire. And the Ukrainian forces have made significant progress to push the Russians away from this city, but not quite far enough. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much. Joining us now from Lviv in western Ukraine to talk about this attack on Ukraine is Avril Benoit. She's on leave from her executive position with the international aid organization Doctors Without Borders and currently is serving as the group's emergency communications coordinator in Ukraine. Uh, first of all, you're not a doctor, but what are your people who are doctors and nurses and the like, what are they seeing on the ground? What range of wounds are they treating? It's uh, it's incredibly Im impressive, I would say, uh, what we're seeing the Ukrainian uh, health system, Ukrainian surgical teams, uh, surgeons, nurses. Uh, they are there in the hospitals that we are able to access. Now, you have to bear in mind that there are a number of places where we cannot access, uh, where they're encircled. Uh, or where it's just far too volatile uh, for us to be able to send teams. So I'm, you're following uh, Mariupol, uh, Chernihiv, uh, Kherson, and Sumy. But in other places, what we're finding on the ground is a huge appetite to prepare uh, for mass casu casualty influx, 
of uh, wounded people all at once. Uh, surgeons are interested, uh, really uh, keen to learn from an organization like us that has a lot of experience of, of war surgery, of triage in situations like this. So we've been doing a lot of training with them and also helping them with supplies because while the staff are there, they're overworked, but they are on the job. Uh, they have uh, indicated to us repeatedly from various parts of the country that they lack medical supplies. So that's one of the things that we're offering. Let's talk about medical supplies, because I know that's something that the Ukrainian people and uh, Ukrainian uh, medical professionals and are in dire uh, need of uh, things like uh, oxygen, uh, medicine, bandages. Uh, how are you getting those uh, that equipment in? It's still possible to bring uh, supplies in through various routes, uh, through Poland, Slovakia. There, there are ways to, uh, with, with trucks, uh, to, to navigate uh, the security environment. Uh, amazingly enough, also the train system seems to be working quite well. Uh, and so that's another way that we're able to move uh, shipments uh, to and from. And so uh, it's uh, sometimes far too difficult. Uh, I will tell you, there was a, a convoy of supplies that we were working with other organizations to reach Mariupol, and it was far too dangerous on the road uh, leading to it, uh, littered with landmines that perhaps a car could slalom through, but certainly not a transport truck with significant amounts of cargo. Uh, so it's um, it's also, of course, a dangerous and volatile environment. So sometimes you, you reach a place and you just have to hunker down for a while while you're assessing, is it possible to go further? What's also happening, I should say, is that if we can bring it to a warehouse, to a, to a central place that's accessible by those hospitals that have requested the supplies, sometimes they are sending cars with their own drivers, uh, sometimes with doctors, uh, to come and pick it up from us. Um, so uh, we're, we're just making do the best we can. What about medical care for non-combatants? How are civilians with serious health problems, how are they getting treated? Incredibly difficult, uh, because in a context like this, in a situation of war, often uh, the authorities want to become Avril, we're having whoever will have uh, taken care of them. Could you, could you, but the civilians, could you give, Avril, could you give that answer again? Um, we could, uh, you're, um, oh, there we go. I'm sorry. The air alarm is just. All right, Avril, why don't you go sh- seek safety? We appreciate your time. Thank you alarm, so much. I'll finish the answer and then I'm. No, no, go ahead. You go, you go seek shelter. Okay. Thank you so Thank much. You we'll talk to you soon. Once refugees making, make it out of Ukraine, another struggle begins uh, figuring out life so far away from home. How that process is proceeding, that's next. In our world lead today, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky warned in an address that Vladimir Putin wants to ensure that after Russia's brutal assault on Ukraine, nothing but, quote, ruins and refugees will remain. The European Union says children make up half of the more than 3.9 million people who have fled Russia's bloody attack on Ukraine. CNN's Kyung La talks to mothers in Poland stuck in something of a refugee purgatory. They're homesick and heartbroken while their husbands and brothers and sons remain in Ukraine to defend the country. They fled from Russian missiles. Now wait for our Polish papers. But all they want is to be in Ukraine. We've been waiting for four hours, yells this woman out of frustration. I have a special needs child. But every refugee here, almost all of them women and mothers, has needs. 
The more than two million Ukrainian refugees in Poland will have to show documents if they want a Polish national identification number for official services. You can work. You want to work? Yeah. Yulia Isaeva and her two children waited since three in the morning. Six hours later, they got that national number so she can work. I wish I could continue my old life, says Isaeva. There, she had a job, family. Her husband now fights in the war. It was taken away, she says, of her life. I have to live here by force. While she's grateful to build a safe life in Poland for her children, I want to go to Ukraine, she says. You hear the story repeated again and again from the women pulled from their lives, stuck in a purgatory of passing time while a war rages at home. I'm Leo. Here. This is where you live? Yes. Yes. This cot is Irina Yashinovska's life now. I work in Ukraine. I'm police. Uh, I'm... Yes. You're a police officer? Yes. She was. She now grabs a neon vest instead. <laughs> She's a volunteer at a Warsaw refugee center, where she herself arrived in early March, fleeing bombing in Kyiv. Most refugees leave here in days for temporary housing or for other countries. But it's been a month, and she refuses to. Unless is to go home to her life in Kyiv, where her brothers are on the front lines. Do you think you'll see them again? No. Yes, she says. They talk twice a week at most. I think everything will be fine, she says. At least I hope for it. Not just my brothers, but everyone. But life outside the war doesn't stop, even though Yulia Isaeva wishes it would. If I have to, she says, I'll do it. We'll start. The extraordinary thing is, in talking to all these women, every single person we've talked to believes that this is temporary, this life in Poland. They see the same news that you're delivering on the program. They are seeing the images. They're having to explain this to their children. Yet when you ask them, they believe that all of this is temporary and they're going to be able to go right back home to Ukraine and pick up life where it stopped. Jake. Tanglan Warsaw, thank you so much. Also breaking in our world lead, another deadly attack in what's become a disturbing series of terrorist incidents in Israel that have left 11 people dead in just eight days. At least five people were killed in the latest attack just today near Tel Aviv. Israeli media reporting there may have been multiple assailants, terrorists on a motorcycle. There's no claim of responsibility yet, but for the first time since 2017, ISIS claims it was behind two other deadly attacks on Israelis. One on Sunday that left two people dead and another last Tuesday that killed four. In the wake of today's attack on innocent Israelis, Israeli police have been placed on their highest alert level. Coming up next, the key questions lawmakers are asking about the January 6th insurrection and a reported seven-hour gap in White House call logs as the Capitol riot unfolded. Stay with us. Our politics lead now. The January 6th Select House Committee investigating the deadly insurrection is zeroing in on seven hours and 37 minutes. That's the amount of time missing 
from President Trump's call logs, according to The Washington Post. CNN first reported that there was a gap in his phone records back in February, and now, as CNN's Paula Reid reports, House committee members are looking to see if the former president was using someone else's phone or perhaps a burner phone to get in touch with allies while the Capitol building was being violently assaulted by his supporters. A key mystery for the January 6th House Select Committee to now solve. Who was talking to then-President Trump during the insurrection, and why is there a gap in the official phone records? It could be a burner phone, uh, for we all know. There's also the possibility that somebody is deliberately suppressing um, the release of these materials, and we just don't know. CNN previously reporting that records turned over to the committee show no calls to or from Trump for several hours as violence unfolded on Capitol Hill. Today, the Washington Post reporting that gap stretched for seven hours and 37 minutes. Bob Woodward was one of the reporters who broke the story. He is a telephone addict, and the idea that nothing happened in the afternoon on the phone January 6th is is as unlikely as uh, the sun not rising. All these revelations adding to the pressure on Attorney General Merrick Garland to pursue investigations or even bring charges against Trump or his allies. Attorney General Garland, do your job so that we can do ours. Monday night, members of the January 6th committee venting frustration with the Justice Department, which still has not acted on the House's criminal contempt referral against former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Now the full House will vote on the committee's recommendation to refer two more top Trump advisors who are refusing to cooperate to the Justice Department for possible prosecution. They are Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro. The Department of Justice has a duty to act on this referral and others we have sent. Without enforcement of congressional subpoenas, there is no oversight. And without oversight, no accountability, not for the former president or any other president, past, present, or future. Also on Monday, a federal judge in California writing that Trump, more likely than not, committed a crime when he and conservative attorney John Eastman tried to block Congress from counting votes on January 6th. The 44-page opinion in a case over the committee's subpoena for Eastman's emails reads like a legal memo to Garland, with the judge writing the illegality of the plan was obvious. Trump's spokesman calling the ruling absurd, but committee chairman Benny Thompson praised it, saying... This ruling is a clear victory for the rule of law. When we reached out today to the Justice Department, it referred us back to Garland's speech earlier this year, where he said the department remains committed to holding January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable. Now, later this week, Trump's son-in-law and former senior advisor Jared Kushner will appear voluntarily before the House Select Committee... Today, the White House said it will not assert executive privilege over Kushner's testimony. That's consistent with how they've handled other former White House advisors. Jake. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Let's discuss all of this with CNN senior legal analyst and former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York during the Obama administration, Preet Bharara. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. So back in February, CNN reported about a large gap in Trump's call records on January 6th. Now, the Washington Post says the committee's investigating If Trump used back channels, uh, other people's phones, burner phones, if the committee received full logs from that day, and if Trump engaged in a possible cover-up, if they can prove any of those points, what might be the ramifications? Well, first, it's not a good look 
for the former president of the United States. He's clearly hiding something. Yes. And I think there's some nuance here, but I think it's a fundamental matter. It shows that he and others around him didn't want people to know what they were up to. And it will be part of the report that the six, uh, the one six committee puts forward. It also can be part of, you know, the predicate for any criminal case that the Justice Department may bring. We don't know exactly where they are in the process or if there is a process. You know, the, the Trump folks will argue that, you know what, it's been reported and it was the president's practice, the former president's practice, to use other people's phones, to not keep records. And that's a pattern and practice of his over the course of the four years. And they will say, well, so there was no particular effort or attempt uh, to cover up this particular few hours of phone logs. That's just the way this guy was. I don't know how far that gets them, because the practice of not maintaining records, and sometimes records are flushed down the toilet, and sometimes they're ripped up, and sometimes they find them, their way to Mar-a-Lago, basically shows a president of the United States who wanted to conceal lots of things on lots of, on lots of occasions across a lot of issues. So I don't think that argument that I would expect will be ultimately helpful to them. And you, you referred to the Justice Department's criminal investigation in addition to the January 6th uh, committee's investigation. According to the New York Times, Federal prosecutors are focusing on how one tweet from December 19th might have become a catalyst for insurrections. Part of Trump's message in that tweet read, uh, as we can see, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. Uh, How much weight could one give this tweet in a a criminal case against the president? I mean, that could be interpreted any number of ways. Look, as prosecutors say when they sum up in cases and when they open in cases, it's the sum total of evidence Uh, You know, the Republicans who have been defending Donald Trump like to cabin the inquiry to a couple of hours on January 6th. The Justice Department, I think reasonable investigators look at the big picture and they say on this day, he sent this particular tweet. Um, On another day, he called uh, an official in Georgia. On another day, he said, let's find these votes. On another day, he's conspiring with Steve Bannon and and other people. So that particular tweet uh, on its own and in a vacuum doesn't say a whole hell of a lot. But in combination with lots and lots of other things, If you see a full timeline and a connecting of all the dots, it becomes part of a meaningful story, I think. Trump recently sat for an interview uh, where he's asking Putin, a a clear adversary of the United States, for help to get damaging information on President Biden and his son, Hunter. Take a listen. Why did the mayor of Moscow's wife give the Bidens, both of them, three and a half million dollars? That's a lot of money. She gave him three and a half million dollars. So now I would think Putin would know the answer to that. I think he should release it. I think we should know that answer. Yeah, just to be clear what President Trump's talking about there, there's a 2020 Senate report that disclosed that a Russian oligarch and then wife of Moscow's mayor gave $3.5 million a decade ago to a company uh, that Hunter Biden says he had no affiliation with. Um, But more broadly... What do you make of this? Here is Trump asking an adversary of the United States fully engaged in an attack on an ally right now, Ukraine, uh, to give information to damage the president of the United States and his son. This is exactly what he was impeached, but not convicted for. What I make of it, what I think any reasonable person would make of it, it's a person who acts crazy sometimes, who is trying to deflect attention away from himself because there's a lot of attention as you mentioned, the seven hours and 37 minutes of logs that are missing, uh, the 1-6 committee doing a great job of, of you know, beginning to prove and make the case that he was involved at a much more significant way than, than was previously known. You have a judge in the last couple of days who, in a parallel proceeding, made the point that there is 
evidence that Donald Trump and others conspired to violate criminal law, meaning that certain documents have to be released under the crime fraud exception. This is what he does. The fact that he's doing it now with a country who was at war in Ukraine with an, of an ally and indiscriminately bombing and killing uh, innocent people and children is, I think, something of a new level. I remember a Republican senator saying after the first impeachment, where he did something similar like this, except as president, <laughs> that he had learned his lesson. Yeah. He learned his lesson. Yes, he learned the lesson. He can get away with it. He yeah. can do this all the time. Preeper Robert, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up next, the recent extraordinary weather event that appears to be a first, not a good first, and has experts taking notes. Stay with us. Moments ago, President Biden signed into law a bill that makes lynching a federal hate crime. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act is named after the 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered by a group of white men for allegedly whistling at a white woman in Mississippi in 1955. At the time, Till's mother... She requested an open casket funeral to show the world what happened to her son, what racism had done to him. President Biden remarking on the significance of today's signing just a few minutes ago. To the Till family, we remain in awe of your courage to find purpose through your pain, to find purpose through your pain. But the law is not just about the past. It's about the present and our future as well. The bill passed Congress, this time with overwhelming bipartisan support. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Congress had tried and failed more than 200 times to outlaw lynching on the federal basis. In our Earth Matters series today, a record heat wave in the coldest place on the planet. Scientists were shocked this month when a research station in Antarctica reported a temperature 70 degrees above normal for this time of year. It's the equivalent of what might be a 130-degree day in Washington, D.C. in March. CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir joins us now. Bill, take us through why this temperature reading has scientists so worried. Well, a lot of it has to do with where it is. The South Pole has been sort of stable. The North has been really the, the point of so much worry and melting and disappearing ice up there. But this is completely off the charts. They're flabbergasted by these numbers. Take a look at the graphics. Vostok is a Russian weather station on East Antarctica, In 65 years of observation, it's never gotten warmer than minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. It got up to zero there. So they're overshooting these records by 30 degrees and in other parts as well. And the cause of this is an atmospheric river that sort of held moisture in, similar to what happened in British Columbia. You can see the big red blobs on this next map that held that heat dome, uh, which turned out to be deadly in the northern hemisphere. Well, in the south, this is just unprecedented stuff. Uh, it's, it's rewritten what they know about Antarctic climate science as well. And if you look at this next graphic, this saddle shape is the average temperature mean. That little red spike uh, on the left side of the graphic, that's not a typo. That's where the temperature was for a couple of days. So this just sat down there. Uh, so it's really a game changer in trying to understand what a warmer planet looks like. And there's this ice shelf in Antarctica nearly the size of Los Angeles, that disintegrated in mid-March within days of that extraordinary warmth on the continent. What's the significance of that? Well, this is another one. This is something that hasn't been observed since satellites went up in in generations. About 460-square-mile ice shelf. And if you think of Antarctica as this big bowl, uh, and around the, the lips of the bowl are these shelves that hold the frozen inland ice in. It's sort of like a cork in a bottle. That came loose, and that has never been observed in this part. Thankfully, the, the ice sort of upstream from there isn't enough to affect sea level rise. 
But what they're worried about at the South Pole is, is all this massive ice melting from below as the ocean currents warm as well. And that could have massive implications on coastal cities really everywhere. We're watching all this happen play out. We're it's not in five yeah. years, not in ten years. It's happening right now. Yep. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. You're welcome. Coming up, survivors from one of the worst scenes of Russia's invasion, the Mariupol Theater, bombed despite the word, the word children written in big, bold letters outside twice in Russian. Coming up next, here from one family who escaped alive. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, people begging literally on their knees for the government to allow them to leave their home so they can get cancer treatments. We're going to take a look inside China's latest COVID lockdown, which may be its most extreme. Plus, the world, the word children was written twice in Russian outside the Ukrainian theater, sheltering thousands of innocent men, women and children. But that did not stop Russia from bombing the building, killing hundreds. We're going to talk to a family who survived. And leading this out with breaking news, a heavy dose of skepticism from the White House, the Pentagon, and the U.S. State Department after the Kremlin claimed it's moving its forces away from the Ukrainian capital. President Biden saying he'll believe it when he sees it. His Pentagon press secretary issuing this warning. We're not prepared to call this a retreat or even a withdrawal. We think that what they probably have in mind is a repositioning to prioritize elsewhere. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Plaikin joins us now live from the Ukrainian capital. And Fred, the, the Pentagon's been emphatic today, quote, the threat to Kiev is not over, unquote. Mm. What's the reality on the ground today? Well, that, that's certainly what it looks like, what it hears, what it sounds like to us tonight. There seems to be a wild artillery go- battle going on as we speak right now, Jake. And in fact, it's been one that's been going on uh, for the past couple of hours, almost throughout this entire day. And it's been quite interesting because since the Russians made that announcement that we heard there about allegedly pulling some of their forces back away from Kiev, we actually went to an area that was fairly close to the front line. Uh, and one of the territorial defense uh, forces soldiers there I talked to, and he said that there's actually been a decided uptick in shelling coming from the Russian side. Now, he says he's not sure whether or not that might be the Russians uh, introducing some sort of scorched earth policy and just shelling this area a lot more than they had before, or whether or not they might be covering some sort of retreat. Again, unclear, but what we saw today was a lot of shelling. Here's what we saw. Even after Russia announced it plans to withdraw most forces from around Kiev, the fighting continues. Residents we spoke to told us they don't believe Moscow's words are for real. On the one hand, they retreat, and on the other, they will transfer their efforts to other positions, Alexander says, so it's difficult to talk about a withdrawal. I do not believe in it. It's probably just a rotation, says Yuri. It's a regrouping of their troops. Despite its forces being stalled near Kiev for weeks, Russia claims it will withdraw because it has achieved its military objectives and now wants to make a positive gesture to Ukraine, Moscow's negotiating team said after talks in Istanbul. A decision was made to radically, at times, reduce military activity in the Kiev and Chernihiv directions, said Russia's deputy defense minister. But the Russians also made clear this is not a ceasefire. And the sounds of heavy battles still reverberate around the capital. 
But the territorial defense forces at this checkpoint say, make no mistake, if the Russians really do withdraw, it's because they lost. From the first days of war, it was obvious that uh, uh, Russians will be defeated on the battlefield, in the diplomatic field and political field. It's, it, was, it was out of the questions. While many here hope the battle for Kiev could end soon, the toll both in blood and infrastructure is massive. And parliamentarian Roman Khrushchuk tells me he's not sure Ukrainians will ever be able to trust Russia again. How long do you think it will, could take to, to make relations better again before there can be trust between Russia and Ukraine again? I don't believe... Or trust towards the Russians, I would say. Uh, I think it will be years and years, maybe hundreds of years. And, uh, you know, every people in Ukraine uh, lost all their house of relatives or friends in this war. And our children, they uh, have a night in shelter, they listen to these bombs, and it's for ages. So there you have it, Jake. Absolutely unclear whether the Russians really are withdrawing. As the Pentagon was saying, uh, they see some small movements, but it's really not clear whether that's a massive force that's going away. But as you can see also, they leave behind a lot of anger here on the part of the population here in Kiev and really unclear how long it could take before the relations could ever be mended. Of course, it's very far away from that even being started. And then we also have to keep in mind that Kiev is one area, but you still have that town Chernihiv as well that the Russians were talking about. That's still completely encircled and leveled almost on a scale of Mariupol, of what we're hearing. Jake? All right, Fred Plykin reporting live for us from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss Democratic Congressman Mike Quigley of Illinois. He serves on the House Intelligence Committee. He met today in Washington, D.C. with members of the Ukrainian Parliament. Congressman, let's start with those meetings. Uh, What did the members of the Ukrainian Parliament share with you about the situation on the ground? And what did they tell you that they still need? Yeah, it was interesting to your point you were just making. Uh, They thought this was not just repositioning by the Russian army. It was also face-saving. They were proud of the fact that they had stopped uh, the Russian efforts at Kyiv and that uh, Putin was looking for an excuse to uh, pull his troops away. Uh, It was a very powerful meeting. I mean, uh, these were five members of the Rada. They were all women, all mothers, uh, but their messages were particularly powerful. One uh, described an alert on her phone that had gone off because her two-year-old son was in an area with an air raid taking place. Uh, They talked about their trip here where they had walked across the border and then driven to uh, Warsaw so that they could fly here. Uh, And I think their takeaway was really compelling. They said, to us, weaponry is humanitarian aid. When the enemy is targeting civilians and children, uh, their needs are our weaponry, first and foremost. Is the U.S. doing enough? Is NATO doing enough to get these Ukrainians the weaponry they need? You know, I, I think the Biden administration has done a masterful job uniting NATO in the West and moving as far as we have. But uh, frankly, this is a, a war on the water. It's a war on land and the air. And you can't fight it on a limited basis. So we need to give them all of the resources they need. Uh, I think the javelins and stingers are particularly effective, but they need surface to air. They need the planes uh, to battle the Russians on an equal footing. The Biden administration today is not obviously buying the line from the Kremlin that they could withdraw from the capital region of Ukraine. How concerned are you that there will remain a serious threat to Kyiv, that this is just more Russian lies, just like the lies we heard 
before they attacked Ukraine when they said they were not going to attack Ukraine. I think my colleagues from uh, the RADA were hit it right on. This is a temporary repositioning. We know that some of the Russian uh, army is up in Belarus um, restocking and getting ready for a further attack. So uh, I, I don't think there's anything you can believe that comes out of uh, the Kremlin on this fact. And uh, I think we should believe most our allies and those who are having to fight the Russians on a day-to-day basis. The Russians might be repositioning near the capital, but of course, they're still pounding, brutally destroying cities such as uh, Melitopol and Mariupol and Kharkiv. And uh, what does that tell you about r- Russian intentions here? Uh, you know what it makes me think of? Um, Ukraine is fighting the fight. Ukraine's cause is the fight and the reasons we formed NATO in the first place. So uh, when I see those cities getting leveled and innocents being butchered, uh, I just wish people would stop saying, well, they're not prefacing everything. Well, they're not a member of NATO, right? They are why we formed NATO, and we should give them all the aid they need to, to fully uh, combat the forces they face. As Fred Plotkin just reported, Ukrainians say it's going to take generations for any sort of trust to be restored. That's assuming that there is some sort of peaceful resolution to this. So what might the Russians need to do uh, in order uh, for the West to ever trust them ever again? Uh, I think a couple things. It would have to begin with regime change, one that they complete on their own. Uh, I also think they're going to have to help Ukraine build their country back to where it was and give Ukraine uh, the understanding that if they want to join the EU and NATO, then that's their choice, that they are a sovereign democratic country. They can't force a demilitarization, therefore weakening the prey that they face, but still will, again, probably take generations. We're seeing the broad strokes of a possible roadmap to a truce, at least, or a ceasefire. It would include uh, tabling the future of Crimea for now. Ukraine would back down from its ambitions to join NATO. Ukraine would look at uh, pledging some sort of military neutrality, although with security guarantees. Do you think that's a deal that President Volodymyr Zelensky should be willing to take? Again, our our guest today said that Ukraine is negotiating with a gun to their head. And I'm hoping that they're not forced because uh, they aren't getting everything they need to make a deal they shouldn't do. So this has to be a decision made by a sovereign democratic country uh, with the protection from the West and a realization that um, I think they firmly believe that they can't trust Russia right now and that they're probably very skeptical that these truce talks have any merit, that the, the Russians intend to do nothing else but stall. Congressman Mike Quigley of Illinois, member of the House Intelligence Committee. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. It was supposed to be a safe, safe place, but not even the word children written in Russian outside the theater. Twice. Not even that stopped Russia from bombing a Ukrainian theater with hundreds of civilians inside. We're going to talk to a family that survived. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead, one of the most flagrant of the many outrageous incidents in Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine has been this month's attack on a Mariupol theater that was serving as a shelter for hundreds of civilians. The Russian word for children was written so clearly outside the building twice it could be seen from satellite images. Yet Putin's forces bombed that theater anyway, and at least 300 Ukrainians died in the attack. 
Only recently have we started getting videos from inside the building after the attack. And now CNN's Ivan Watson has found someone who was in the theater with her family and shared with him this harrowing story. This was the Mariupol Drama Theater before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, a cultural and architectural symbol of the city. And when the Russian military laid its deadly siege of Mariupol, the theater became a safe haven. Six people, like with a cat, we go on the street and Russian tanks started to shoot at us and we're running with craziness and then we go to the theater and you know what, in the theater was a lot of people, they was like, be okay, we have a food, they give us a tea uh, and they said like, you should find a place where you could, uh, like, uh, like a bed. This woman and her family recently escaped from Mariupol. My name is Maria Kutnyakova. I'm from Mariupol. I'm Maria from Mariupol. On the morning of March 16th, Maria, her mother, sister and cat joined hundreds of other civilians sheltering in the theater. Footage from March 10th shows families huddled there in the dark, feeling protected perhaps by the signs Deti, children in Russian, that volunteers posted outside the building. Shortly after arriving, Maria went to check whether an uncle who lived nearby was still alive. Now I hear in the noise of the plane, like bombs playing. We know how it's, uh, no, uh, you know, uh, how it's uh, this noise because it's bombed every day. She returned to the theater to find it destroyed. So I understand that my family in the theater. And uh, everyone uh, screaming the names, you know, like Mama, Papa, Lyosha, Sasha. And I'm starting calling like Mom, Gala. Footage of the immediate aftermath shows dazed civilians covered in dust, while the roof over the main auditorium had completely collapsed. When the theater was bombed, uh, my sister was standing with the window and the window was like blow up and she's fallen down. And my mom was in another part of the theater and wall uh, fallen to her. Maria's mother and sister were wounded but survived. Your sister, is she doing all right? Um, no. Really? Uh, she's like contuse. She's got a concussion. She is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shortly after the initial strike on the theater, Maria says what was left of the building came under a fresh artillery attack. Everyone starts uh, screaming that the uh, uh, theater is on fire, mm-hmm. so we should run. And we're running, but Russians bombed it. So we ran in from the theater and bombs was like this, this, this. It eventually took nine days for Maria and her family to get through Russian checkpoints and reach relative safety in Ukrainian-controlled territory. You seem very positive and upbeat right now. Uh, I understand that I'm very lucky. I'm very, you understand, like thousands and hundreds of people still in Mariupol and they bombed. They have no food, no water, uh, they have no medicine, nothing. And I'm understand I'm, I'm very lucky. Like, mm-hmm. I have my arms, I have my legs, uh, uh, what I need anymore, nothing. And your family. Yeah, and my family, my cat is in safe, so like. This is little Mushka. She's a two-year-old cat, and she survived the bombing of the Mariupol theater uh, with, with her family and they're now headed to western Ukraine in this bus. But no one knows how many people may have died under the rubble. 
Russia has denied that its forces bombed the theater, and Russian state TV recently showed what was left of it after Russian troops moved into this part of the city. Judging by the damage, the Russian reporter claims, it was bombed from the inside. He alleges there is information that Ukrainian nationalists organized a terrorist attack here, a claim that people inside the theater strongly reject. Are you angry right now? Uh, no, I want that Russian just go away. This is Ukrainian territory. I don't understand why they come in and tell me that it's not my land. They're not fighting with the army. They're fighting with every citizen. You know, they bombed hospitals, they bombed kindergartens, they bombed the uh, houses of uh, uh, peaceful people. They're not fighting with the armies. Maria and her family rushed to a waiting van. The driver will take them for free to western Ukraine, where Maria hopes her sister can safely recover from her injuries. Now, Jake, everybody who flees Mariupol, they suffer an additional indignity. They have to go through these Russian checkpoints. So people like Maria, uh, they have their phones searched by Russian troops, the same Russian troops that destroyed her home and her city. And during that process, she says one of the Russians wanted to pet her cat and she had to keep it quiet. But her thought was, don't you dare touch my cat with your bloody Russian hands. This again to the Russian soldier who's part of the force that invaded and occupied her country. Maria said she felt safe here in Zaporizhia, but her family was not going to stay here. It's been spared the ground war, but it's just 20 miles away from Russian tanks, and that's part of why they left as soon as they could. They do not want to take another risk with the Russian military. Jake. Ivan Watson with that powerful report live for us from Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's discuss all of this and more with CNN Senior Global Affairs Analyst Biana uh, Goladriga. Um, uh, Biana, before we get to the, what's going on in terms of the war, let's just take a moment to reflect on, on the, hum, the human face of this. Uh, thankfully, Maria and her family survived, but you see her sister with that blank stare. Um, hopefully she'll recover, but there are people, I mean, obviously thousands are being killed, but beyond that, the wounded and the emotionally traumatized. And this is, this, these are scars that will never go away. And these are figures that we're just starting to learn about, right? I mean, after this war, you can imagine the devastation and the toll, the human toll that this has taken upon Ukrainian citizens. But what you also notice is the resolve, right, in the fight in Maria, saying that I will stay here and fight these Russians, right? This is our country. Why are they here? There are millions of people just like her. And I think that calculation was Putin's biggest mistake, right? That miscalculation, actually, that the Ukrainians would welcome him with open arms. And in fact, when you heard President Zelensky give that interview to four independent Russian journalists over the weekend, he said he believes 99.9 percent that whatever was told to Vladimir Putin convinced him that this operation would take three or four days, that they would capture Kyiv, right, that they came with dress uniforms, preparing a parade and welcoming Ukrainians back to their homeland of Russia, and that Ukrainians wanted to overturn the Zelensky administration. Clearly, that wasn't the case. And yeah. so now what happens? What does he do? He's stuck. His back's against the wall. So earlier this morning, uh, there was this Russian uh, Kremlin claim uh, that they were you know, removing troops from uh, outside the Kiev area. Uh, and uh, since then, our reporting and then also what we're starting to hear from the Pentagon, the State Department, the White House is very skeptical of this. And not only uh, skeptical of what the Russians are claiming, but also uh, cautioning 
the Ukrainian people, that this repositioning that they're saying, okay, maybe they're taking a few soldiers from outside Kiev, but get ready. Take a listen to what White House Communications Director Kate Benningfield just said about all of this. I think we should be clear-eyed about the reality of what's happening on the ground, and no one should be fooled by Russia's announcements. We believe any movement of forces from around Kiev is a redeployment and not a withdrawal. Uh, and the world should be prepared for a major offensive against other areas of Ukraine. Everyone uh, should expect that we're going to continue to see attacks across Ukraine. Well, to be very clear, very clear, she was reading some of these words. I mean, and a major offensive is one of the terms that she was reading there. Uh, that's a warning uh, to people, not only in Kiev, but all over the country. Like, this is getting going to get worse, maybe. Well, it's also one of these situations where we should take Putin at his word. And that was the word that he said over the last summer when he said that Ukraine, right, is not a legitimate state, that it has long been a part of Russia and that it's being run by Nazis uh, in the Zelensky administration. So how he saves face and comes around now to tell, forget what he says to the Russian people, because he's in charge there right now and he has firm position. How does he save face globally to say that this was all just about the Donbass region, right, or solidifying Crimea and having Ukraine accept that Crimea is Russian at the expense of tens of thousands of soldiers? We're right to be skeptical. And I think Ukraine is right to worry that as long as Vladimir Putin stays in power, he's going to want to seize that country one way or another. And what do you make of, we heard yesterday, um, a Ukrainian uh, intelligence official told CNN uh, that, or maybe just announced in general, that, that he thought that the, the Putin at this point was going to try to cleave Ukraine into two. Basically, in, in, the, in the border areas, in the, in the south and the east, uh, you'd have occupied Ukraine. Right. Uh, and then the rest would be, you know, free Ukraine, although in peril. Um, do you think that that, that might be what, what he's going to end up doing here? It may be what his next approach is, right? But when you see Ukrainians like Maria, when you see Volodymyr Zelensky not relenting, not leaving Kiev, I, I don't know how the Russian military can accomplish that. You're seeing tens of thousands of Russian soldiers dead. You're seeing seven generals now, I believe, according to Ukrainians, that have been killed. Mercenaries are now being brought in. So whatever Putin thinks the next phase may be or what he will be able to settle on is one thing. What is actually practical and what can take place is another. He clearly wants to see these sanctions lifted. I think he's trying to take a breath now, recalculate, obviously, given the losses. I wouldn't assume this is going to end anytime soon, though. Bianca Goldrigo, thank you so much. Good to see you, as always. The GOP lashing out at one of its own members, not the first time. We're going to talk to a former Republican congressman about the future of the Republican Party. That's next. In our politics lead, there is a seven-hour and 37-minute gap in White House call logs for Donald Trump during the height of the violent insurrection on January 6th, according to The Washington Post and CBS News. The gap, which was first reported by CNN in February, is raising more questions than answers. Considering a slew of reporting showing calls did occur between then-President Trump and lawmakers during the insurrection, now sources telling The Post and CBS that the January 6th committee is investigating if Trump used back channels or the phones of aides of his or a burner phone. Former Texas Republican congressman and former undercover CIA officer Will Hurd joins us now. He has a brand new book out today. It's called American Reboot, an idealist's guide to getting big things done. Like I said, it just came out today. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Good to hear, have you here and congratulations on the book. Um, there is, uh, I want to start with Donald Trump, who you, you know, you were critical of when you were in office and also in, in the book, uh, not necessarily of his policy so much as his approach to things. There's a shady phone log situation going on. 
A federal judge said yesterday that Donald Trump likely committed a crime. Supreme Court Justice conservative activist wife, uh, Ginny Thomas, facing questions about her role in January 6th. Your, your book is about pragmatic idealism in a lot of ways, how things can get accomplished. How are you staying idealistic about the Republican Party right now, a party that you love? I say idealistic because as I crisscross this country, I see real Americans that care about their country. 72% of Americans think the country's on the wrong track and they want something better. We don't have to stay on this track. We can provide something better. That's one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book is to talk about where we should be going, that some of this nonsense we've been seeing over the last couple of years doesn't have to be uh, the case. It wasn't the case a number of years ago, and I think our, I actually do believe our, our best days are still ahead of us. So two-thirds of your House Republican colleagues voted to undermine the election results in Pennsylvania and Arizona uh, based on lies about what was going on in those states. I, I don't doubt that you would not have voted that way. Um, am, I, am I correct? Yeah, correct. Yes, so, correct, yeah. Um, I guess the question is, how do you stay idealistic knowing that Kevin McCarthy, the leadership of the House Republican Party, are election liars? I mean, forget the stuff that you agree with, which is 95 percent of it. They're against election fairness. Well, a third of the House trend, you know, changes almost every year anyways, right? And so you're always getting new people. So when the new folks that are running, Republicans are going to take the House back in, in, in 2022. Well, that's almost a, a fait accompli and likely to take back the Senate. We've got to make sure we have good candidates that are coming in that are actually being, you know, that are going to be doing things based on the values of the GOP, not stuff that's politically expedient. That's what happens in, in Washington. A lot of these decisions that lawmakers make are done because of political expediency, because they're talking to the fringe of the party, um, the people that vote in, 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 in primaries. Last cycle, 92% of House congressional seats were decided in a primary. And so instead of talking to the middle, you talk to the lunatic fringe, and that's part of the problem why you see things up here. But it doesn't have to be that way. And if we change the way folks come up here to Washington, D.C., you're going to start seeing the behavior change up here. And how do you change the way folks come up to Washington, D.C.? How do you, how do you change that? Because redistricting has sure. made it so that, part, as you say, as yeah. you know, not just mm-hmm. Republicans, Democrats, like the battles in the primary uh, because of gerrymandering and the, and the rest. And, uh, you know, it, it seems it, like... It's, it's simple. The, the way you change is the way that I got elected. I was a black Republican elected in a 71% Latino district. Nobody thought I had a chance. I had as tough of a primary as most people do, but I also had a general election because this was a district that was truly a jump ball. Anybody could win from, right. from, from either party. And, but I got different kinds of people to come vote in the, in the election. I, I, I dig into this, into the numbers in the book. When you look at in the last non-presidential election, 54,000 people was the average number of voters in a primary. That's not a lot of people. And the number of folks that actually vote in general elections but not in primaries is a lot. Those are the folks that are care about putting food on their table, a roof over their head, and making sure the people that they love are, are healthy and happy, bringing those people in. Why do we have low turnout in a lot of elections? It's because we're not providing something to the majority of the people that they want to go out and support. That, if we change that, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. That what I'm talking about is difficult. It's hard, mm-hmm. but it's worthwhile because if we want to keep this century the American century, we have to fix this problem and send people up here that are going to get big things done. So you write uh, rather critically about the former chairman of the committee you were on, uh, the House Intelligence Committee, Con- Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. You write during his first impeachment, um, Schiff used his position to further undermine trust in our democracy 
The president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won, he said during the impeachment proceedings. I don't know if Schiff was making those claims to create conflict and contrast, but by perpetuating this myth that the Russians actively cooperated with President Trump, he inflicted enormous damage on public trust in the election process. This became an excuse for President Trump to take a page out of the Democratic playbook to undermine the election results after he lost to Joe Biden. Another appalling effort to destabilize our democracy. So you, you really think that, that Adam Schiff inspired Donald Trump's uh, false election claims and you could, that you could really even compare the two? I mean, I understand you disagree with things that Schiff said sure. and did. But, I mean, what Donald Trump did was, I mean, there was an insurrection. Of course. I, I, I've, been, I've been clear about okay. what Donald Trump has, has done. You, okay. you know that. We've, we've yes. talked about that a lot. But here was my problem with someone like Chairman Schiff. He understood. He, he, he is a, he's a smart individual. He has a lot of experience in, in many of these issues. And he was always talking about there's more than circumstantial evidence. In Russiagate, in, in the in collusion. Yeah. And, and he continued to, to, to say that. And it made people think, oh, he's chairman of the House Intel Committee. He must ac- have access to something that none of us did. And when it all came out, he didn't have that kind of access. And that, that helped erode trust in our institutions. And that, that continued drumbeat by that, by by Chairman Schiff, you know, caused some of this, 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 caused some of this problem. Now, the, the insurrection on January 6th is unacceptable. I've made that, I've been right. very clear. But we have to look at everybody that's playing a part in, in eroding that trust in all of our institutions, not just at the federal level and state level. It's in the media. It's in academia. And we need people that are, that are going to actually do what I say in the book is your audio and your video must match what you say. Mm-hmm. must also match with what you do. And unfortunately, both political parties lack doing that. All right, an open invitation to Chairman uh, Schiff right now to come back and respond to this, just out of an issue of fairness. Former Congressman Will Hurd, uh, the book is American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. It's out today from Simon & Schuster. Thank you so much. Thank Congratulations. You. Good to see you. Got a city of more than 20 million people at a standstill. No one allowed to leave their apartments, not even for life-saving medical treatments. We're going to take a look at the extreme lockdown. That's next. In our health lead, it's official. The Omicron subvariant, dubbed BA2, is now the most dominant strain of coronavirus in the United States, according to the CDC. We have not seen a national surge in cases yet here in the United States. And the key indicator hospitalizations, that continues to slope down, thankfully. It's now around last summer's numbers. But not all countries are seeing this downward trend. In China, expo centers have been converted into massive quarantine centers. CNN's David Culver is in Shanghai for us. There, the hard-hit city of more than 25 million has ground to a complete halt. Emotions in Shanghai are at a breaking point. Chinese social media showing people shoulder to shoulder, pushing to get vegetables. Panic shoppers stocking up ahead of an unprecedented citywide lockdown. The plan is to shut Shanghai down in two phases. First, the eastern half from the Huangpu River. Then, the west. In all, some 25 million people confined to their homes. Already desperate stories emerging. This woman pleading for permission to leave her compound, saying that her husband needs his cancer treatment. This latest Omicron-fueled surge in cases is China's worst outbreak since Wuhan two years ago. And yet for some living in the country's international financial hub, Shanghai, this 
is unlike anything experienced here before. Videos circulating on social media show hundreds of COVID patients filling up crowded hospitals. So as to keep in line with President Xi Jinping's zero-COVID policy, Shanghai has turned stadiums and exhibition centers into centralized makeshift hospitals. This video is from the Shanghai Expo Center, said to hold more than 6,000 patients. On Twitter, expat Emma Leaning chronicling her experience testing positive with mild symptoms, taken to the Expo Center, given just a bucket and rag to wash up every day. Just about every day outside, you hear a blaring loudspeaker with a new announcement. On this cold, rainy day, another mandatory COVID test. My neighbors and I hurried out to the nearest government testing site. They only let us out of the gate just for the test, and then we head back in. Once done, your neighborhood gate is locked back up. Stores and restaurants that have had just one confirmed case pass through are treated like a crime scene, roped off and disinfected. Since confirming its first Omicron case in mid-December, mainland China's average new daily case count has surged from double digits to more than 5,000. There are more than 65,000 active cases and counting. The virus has spread to 29 provinces and regions. The lockdowns and mass testing bring life to a near halt in many places and could have global economic impacts. China's Jilin province, an industrial hub, along with the steel-making center Tangshan, Locked down. China's Silicon Valley, Shenzhen, is only just reopening after putting 17 million residents under lockdown for a week. Back in Shanghai, this latest lockdown is forcing Tesla's Gigafactory to hit the brakes on production, and it's already caused Shanghai Disneyland to shut its gates. This bustling metropolis powering down. To the outside world, the scenes are apocalyptic. China once again trying to prove it can contain the invisible villain. David Culver, CNN, Shanghai. And our thanks to David Culver for that report. From the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan to the highest court in the United States, how one veteran's fight to breathe has taken him all the way to the Supreme Court. Stay with us. In our politics, lead a major change in the presidential nomination process for the Democratic Party. Iowa and New Hampshire could well soon lose their status as the first states to have their say in the primary and caucus calendar. Numerous members of the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee have expressed their support for a proposal that would completely restructure the party's current nominating process in favor of a new format that would prioritize states with more diverse battlegrounds in the early nominating contests, meaning the largely white states of Iowa and New Hampshire would move down later in the calendar. A final decision could come when the committee meets again next month. A vote political reporters forced to travel to those states in the dead of winter every four years will certainly be watching closely. Turning to our buried lead stories, these are stories we feel are not getting enough attention. Some hope for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. Today, the United States Supreme Court heard the case of U.S. Army veteran Leroy Torres. Torres says he was forced to resign from his post as a Texas state trooper after experiencing the lung damage he developed from exposure to burn pits while serving our country overseas. Torres is, of course, not the only one suffering from the effects of burn pits, which would be illegal to build in the United States, but not so throughout Iraq and Afghanistan, where burn pits were used 24-7, to incinerate all sorts of waste, food, old uniforms, medical waste, military equipment, jet fuel, chemicals, human feces, whatever. 
This exposure left many veterans with long-lasting side effects, the worst of which is cancer. Let's talk about all this with the man at the center of this Supreme Court case, Army Reserve Captain Leroy Torres. He's also the co-founder of the Burn Pits 360 Veterans Organization. He's joined by his lawyer, Brian Lawyer. Lawler. Uh, uh, Leroy, you served in Iraq in 2007 where you were exposed to burn pits. Explain to our audience what the lasting effects have been for you uh, and what happened with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Hi, Steve. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me uh, today. Yes, uh, I was exposed in 07, 08 during my deployment uh, to Balad, Iraq. And uh, now for the last uh, 13 years, I've been suffering from a lung injury. Uh, I was diagnosed with a constrictive bronchitis with fibrosis, as well as 2018 with a uh, toxic encephalopathy, which is a brain injury. And uh, this is uh, what uh, has been a, a high cost to pay from the price of war. Uh, of course, uh, I was uh, forced to, to leave the uh, Department of Public Safety because of this uh, war-related illnesses associated with toxic exposure. So the, the case was argued today. What might a win in the Supreme Court mean? What would that look like for you? Uh, a win in the Supreme Court would mean that uh, it would be, of course, a hurdle for my case for us to take it back to Texas and to argue the merits of, of the case for, for my job loss. What about more broadly in terms of other uh, victims and survivors of these toxic burn pits? This would definitely uh, help uh, possibly thousands of uh, veterans, of, of citizen soldiers who have served dual role in the military, who have been exposed to these toxic uh, burn pits, that uh, this will enable them to... Uh, to to be compensated or to be able to remain employed. So the House and Senate have, have each passed their own legislation aimed at helping former service members, veterans exposed to burn pits in order to better get access to medical services. The bills still need to be reconciled. Uh, the differences need to be worked out before uh, the legislation is ultimately sent to President Biden to sign into law. Do you think that process will be resolved soon? Uh, we remain hopeful that it will, having that the, the PACT Act did pass the, the, the House, that now we move on to the Senate and uh, we are, remain hopeful for after the, the, the lengthy time that we've spent on, on advocating alongside uh, thousands of veterans that were affected, that we remain hopeful that this will continue to move forward and uh, onto the President's, President Biden's desk for signature. And one of the big sticking points has been what's called presumption, meaning uh, somebody's exposed to, to burn pits. A few years later, they develop an unusual uh, cancer uh, or some other adverse health reaction. The Veterans Affairs Department, I believe, has been uh, in the past uh, demanding proof uh, that it was caused, that the sickness, the illness, the disease was caused by the burn pit. Presumption would be that the presumption is made that it, that it was caused by that. Um, in that light, uh, President Biden has noted that his son, Beau, uh, was exposed to burn pits, and he has uh, hypothesized that Bo uh, may have developed the brain cancer that took his life ultimately because he was exposed to a burn pit while serving in Iraq. Though Biden has, has been clear uh, most recently uh, during his State of the Union address to note that there's no direct evidence of this. I just wonder, as somebody who has been arguing the case, what you make of this. There, there is no clear evidence that that's why Bo died, uh, but do you give Bo Biden and Joe Biden, the same presumption that many uh, veterans ask for at the VA. You know, I, I, I believe that uh, this is uh, I do because it's been something that uh, there's been much research has been done on the, the issue of toxic exposure itself. So I, I strongly believe that this is an issue that that uh, that affected him as well as uh, thousands of others.
that were exposed to these uh, the infamous burn pits for sure. All right, Leroy Torres and Brian Lawler, thank you so much. Best of luck when it comes to the final uh, Supreme Court uh, decision. And we, of course, will continue to stay on the story and report on that Supreme Court ruling. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Thanks, Jay. Thank In our health lead, a larger group of Americans can now get a fourth COVID shot if they want one. The Food and Drug Administration today okayed a second COVID booster shot for those who are 50 and older. If you're in that age group, you'll be eligible starting four months after your first booster. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has already signed off on the FDA recommendation. So, have you heard? CNN Plus is finally here. It's a new streaming service. It went live today. It's complete with live news and exclusive films and original series and interactive interviews. You can catch the debut of a new program we have called Jake Tapper's Book Club. On episode one, Dolly Parton and James Patterson, they teamed up to write a thriller that takes place in Nashville. You can sign up for CNN Plus today and learn more at cnnplus.com. We're joining the streaming revolution here. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know you can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.